Hi, my name is Jake. I'm one of our, our interns. Uh, our pastor, Matt, is away on vacation for a couple of weeks. So if anything goes wrong, we're blaming the other intern, David. That's what we're going to do. Uh, he's taller than I am. He could take it. So I'm glad we're a united front in that. Uh, but if you are new, we are starting a new series today. Last week, we wrapped up a couple of months in the books of Jonah and Nahum on the great city of Nineveh. And today, we're starting on the build-up to Easter. Uh, it's, a, it's a great weekend, and we're starting uh, that build-up in the betrayal of Jesus. Lovely passage of the disciples, Judas and, and the disciples betraying God. So I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. We've got a lot to do, uh, so let's start out with that. Heavenly Father... Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, every Sunday we remember what you've done for us in coming to earth, in coming to the cross to die, and in coming back to life three days later. Our lives are are so defined by that weekend 2,000 years ago at Easter. And so in this build-up to Easter during Lent, Lord, help us to re-realize the glory of what you've done. Spirit, Would you grant us hearts whose great anticipation at this time of year is not the NHL playoffs or the NBA playoffs or spring break or pretty weather? Would our greatest anticipation at this time of year be to celebrate your victory at the cross of Calvary and to see you return once again? So help us to love your word now, God, to that end uh, and focus us on your name, Jesus. Amen. So I want to start off our time uh, by recalling something that we all know to be painfully true, and it's that there's a lot of ways to be wrong. There's just a lot of ways to be dead wrong. Uh, I have a friend who used to be a massive player. He would use women for his gratification all the time. He was so tactical even about how he would do it. He would have these fake names so that no women at the club that he would meet would know his real identity. He would have this playbook of dates that he would use to stir the affections of of women. And and one of them he described to me, he said, what I would do, you guys know the water in Vancouver? You know how down by the water there's those binoculars that help you sightsee? This is what he would do. He said, we'd go across the water to a beach and carve a huge heart in the sand. Then he'd go, take the girl to dinner. After dinner, they'd go for a walk. They'd get to the sightseeing binoculars. She would look through, see the big heart in the sand, smitten. He, he said it was like shooting fish in a barrel. We are aware that when someone's ways are so selfish and their goal is so selfish, they're wrong. And, but that's not the way all wrongdoing goes, right? right? Oftentimes, we have a good goal. And we just have misguided ways of going about it. Uh, Think of the classic example of a husband. Uh, His his wife comes home from work and and she's had a frustrating day. Her her boss wasn't listening to her. Uh, She had that frustrating coworker. You know, that coworker, that coworker. And and she wants to talk about it. And, And what's his goal in that moment? It's to help his wife feel better. And what does he do? Like a total rookie, tries to solve the problem. She doesn't want you to solve the problem, man. She wants you to listen. But, but he's left on the other side of the situation trying to solve it, them getting in a fight and him wondering what the heck happened. And maybe he didn't want to spend the time required. Maybe he wanted to get back to what he was doing. His ways were a bit misguided, but his, his overall goal wasn't terrible, right? And we could see how, how that misguided good guy 
is different from the villainous player, right? Well, those two categories of people, I think, is, is what we're tempted to see when we look in our passage uh, of this betrayal. We see Judas, obvious villain, betrayer of betrayers. And we see Peter, who seems a little bit misguided, but generally a good guy. And, and if that's what we see when we look in our passage today, we're going to miss it. Because this is not a story of, of those two very different kinds of people. This is about two very similar kinds of betrayers and how we are no different from them. So we're going to look in our passage and see how, how we sell out God, whether with coins or with ways that show our hearts aren't really fully dedicated to him. And we're going to see this text break up into three parts, okay? First, we're going to see Judas and how he is pursuing man's good in, in man's way. He's a, a selfish good that he's going for and a selfish way of going about it. Then we're going to see Peter. And Peter's pursuing God's good, but he's doing it in man's way. And, and then finally, we're going to see Jesus. And Jesus pursuing God's good in God's way. So Judas, Peter, Jesus. Let's start out with Judas, okay? Uh, now, some context, if you've never actually been in this passage before. Uh, Jesus has, up to this point, been teaching for three years, preaching and healing. And he's amassed a, a big crowd of followers. And these Religious elite are not very happy with Jesus, okay? They are mad because he's usurped their authority, but mostly because he claims to be God. And they're not a fan of that, right? They've been out to get him for a while. And in our passage today, they finally get their man. And they get him because Judas hands Jesus over. So let's see that happen now in Matthew 26, verse 47. Matthew 26, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. I don't know if you like crime investigation shows. I love crime investigation shows. One of them is Criminal Minds, right? And, and I love Criminal Minds growing up, partly because I wanted to be as smooth as Shamar Moore. That's, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? But mostly because they do these great dramatized investigations of these terrible, crazy crimes. And uh, if you cannot satiate your desire to see those things by watching TV, you might actually enter this profession and, and help solve these crimes. Um, I have found a real-life, though substantially less good-looking, Shamar Moore, in Dr. Stanton Salmonow. <laughs> so he is an American psychologist. What he does is help police and courts understand what's going through the minds of criminals. He wrote this article in Psychology Today. It has this quote that I, I want to read for you. It's up on the screen now. Perhaps the most surprising discovery in my early years of trying to understand the criminal mind was that without exception, offenders regard themselves as good human beings. No matter how long their trail of carnage, no matter what suffering they cause others, 
every one of them retained the view that he is a good person. And that doesn't necessarily mean they've liked everything they've done, but they justify themselves to themselves by saying, you know, I'm, I'm Matt Corbin, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, and he details this one teenager who says, anyone who knocks over a little old lady in the street and robs her should be hung. That same teenager was apprehended for robbing a woman in her home, terrorizing her while he did it. But he said it was basically fine because he didn't physically hurt her. According to Dr. Samenow, criminals have this remarkable ability to be shocked at the crimes of others. I promise you, if, if we took our passage today and we went to any maximum security prison, they would share our horror with Judas's behavior. How could this guy dare to sell out his friend like this, right? If, if you read in verse 47, they came with swords and clubs to come get Jesus. We read this in verse 49. It says, And Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Understandably, a lot of people are angry about that kiss because it's a, it's a sign of love to commit an act of hate. The kiss isn't really what gets me, though. Because in that culture, in that time, you meet someone, you kiss them. That's what you do. What kills me is the greetings, Rabbi. Because I don't know about you, if, if I was going to sell a loved one of mine out, literally, I don't know if I would have the gall to call them by their beloved title in my life while I do it. Teacher, mentor, big brother, greetings, rabbi. Why did Judas do what he did? Well, we read a little bit earlier in Matthew 26 that uh, he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but that's 120 days wages back then. So it makes sense for us to say that Judas sold out Jesus for $25,000, right? And I don't know what he wanted to do with that $25,000. Luxury, comfort, power. I'm assuming you could buy a lot of camels in first century Palestine for $25,000. We have no idea what Judas wanted to do specifically, but we know two things for sure. And the first is that he had desires for that money. And the second is that he had justified those desires to himself enough to act on them. To Judas, what was good was dependent on what he wanted, on his desires. And that's what it means to pursue our good our way, right? We justify what we want. And, and you might be adamant that you would never sell out your friend like Judas did. Jacob, I would never do that. And probably neither would the maximum security inmates that we would talk to. But, but don't we do this in different ways? Don't we have, have goals and wants that consume our, our minds and our motivations and our actions counter to what God has commanded? Right? Do, do we not see this when we fudge the numbers on our taxes? when we cover up what we need to confess by lying, when we flirt with the person that we know that we shouldn't because, man, there's that rush we fiend for. We have good reasons for everything we do, just like Dr. Samenow said and just like Judas did. We are all deciding what we want and what is good on our own terms. And to Judas, 
that good didn't turn out to be very good. It led to a crisis of conscience and despair so profound that he ended up killing himself. Tri-City Church, where are you defining what is good by what you want? How is it blinding you from seeing and loving the lovely God? What is the $25,000 that you're selling Jesus out for? In this passage, we see Judas pursuing man's good in man's way. Now I want to take us to Peter, right? Pursuing God's good in man's way. It seems like he's the opposite of Judas, right? In, in your hour of need, a snake will devour you, but a friend, a friend will have your back. And that's Peter, is it not? But, but when we look past the surface at the heart of the matter, we see that, G, sorry, that Peter is far more selfish than he would seem. Let's look now at verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This is Peter we learn in other gospels. After Peter cuts off this guy's ear, Jesus says to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Isn't the contrast in these verses just stunning to you? It's stunning to me. Judas comes to betray Jesus. His response is, friend, do what you came to do. Peter comes to save Jesus' life cuts the guy's ear off for him. And, and Jesus rebukes him. Jesus, we read in Luke, reattaches the guy's ear. What gives, man? I'm having your back. Why does he rebuke Peter so strongly and undo his efforts? Well, it's because he's pursuing God's good in, in man's way, the way of the sword, the way of the power in, in this world. And I think that's something that on some level we're all familiar with. For example, uh, if you know me, uh, you know I love debate. I, I coach high school debate. And man, I just like winning arguments. Like that's, I know none of you are like this, but I, I like winning arguments. I like being right. And especially about arguments about politics and culture, about the world we live in and how, how it should be. There, there are people who actually make a living doing that, uh, arguing about those sorts of things. And, and one such guy is named Ben Shapiro. You might know him. I, I put him up on the screen there. Uh, he is a conservative lawyer, writer, speaker. Lots of evangelical Christians really like Ben Shapiro's stuff. Uh, there's a lot of his stuff that I disagree with, some of his stuff I agree with, but I don't actually want to deal with his content. We're going to put that over here for now, okay? I want to talk about the way Ben Shapiro says what he says. Because if, if you watch Ben Shapiro, you'll know that he has a deep, personal, passionate love for destroying people with arguments. <laughs> this is, it's his bread and butter. If you look up on YouTube, you'll find compilation videos, no exaggeration, hours long, millions of views. Ben Shapiro destroys people with straight facts, part one. It's, <laughs> it's his gig. He, so much so, he wrote a book not exaggerating, the title of which is How to Debate Leftists and Destroy Them. 
not love them, not persuade them, destroy them, right? A lot of his appeal is that if you've ever felt shouted down or stepped on, right? If you've ever had a quote unquote social justice warrior come for your job or education or criminal record or the world being the way that you like it to be, man, if you ever had someone come for that, it gets pretty tempting to read a book about how to destroy that person, right? I think that's where Peter's at right now. He knows that Jesus is God and that this mob is unjust. And so what does he do? He goes to vindicate, to powerfully defend and justify God. And shouldn't that make Peter the hero in this situation, right? How does Jesus answer him? Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He's saying, Peter, you think I need muscle right now? I could call my, my father. He's got 12 legions of angels waiting for me. Now, just for your reference, uh, a legion is a term for a group of soldiers, okay? Uh, about 5,000 typically. So 12 legions, conservatively, 60,000 angels. Now, 1 Chronicles 21, God's gonna destroy the whole city of Jerusalem. Do you know how many angels he calls on to destroy the whole city? Just one. Not 60,000, not 10, just one. Pete, put down the butter knife, I got this. <laughs> right? He's saying, Peter, you're pursuing God's good in man's way. Even if you're saying you're trying to honor and glorify the good God of the universe, I mean, that's God's goal too, right? We can see the obvious surface level difference. Judas sells out God for coins. Peter picks up a weapon to vindicate his Lord. We can see the obvious differences, but the similarities at the heart are so stunning. They should capture us. Guys, Peter's way of pursuing God's glory is not good. He wanted to destroy his enemy. If Peter was going to write a book right now, it would be entitled, How to Honor God Before Your Enemies and Destroy Them. <laughs> ben Shapiro would write the foreword, right? <laughs> That's not how Jesus invites us to interact with the lost. You're not supposed to destroy them. You're supposed to love them. And Peter might look like his goal is God's glory, but it's far more corrupted by his desires than he's willing to admit. His ways demonstrate his real loyalties. He's no better than Judas. And, and Jesus is making that clear by showing him the importance of not just the goal you say you keep, but the way you go about it. He says in, in verse 54, I could call on my powerful angels, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so fulfillment of the scriptures. This is the force behind Jesus' rebuke of Peter. And if you've been following along in the gospels up to this point, it, it makes total sense because he's been flagging for Peter left, right, and center that dying is in his job description. This scene is all according to plan. Let's look at one time that Jesus reminds Peter of this in Mark 8. Okay, Mark 8, 31 to 35 says this. And Jesus began to teach the disciples that the son of man, that's Jesus, 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus said this plainly. In short, Peter, Matthew 26 is gonna happen. I don't want you to be surprised, okay? It's coming up. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Again, we see Peter saying here, Jesus, dying is not an option. How does Jesus respond to Peter? Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, Peter, I'm gonna reveal myself as king, but I'm not gonna do it the world's way. I'm not gonna drop 60,000 angels on my opponents. I'm gonna let them, my creation, torture me to death on a gruesome cross in order to satisfy the judgment of God that they have waiting for them. And then after three days, just like the scriptures say, I'm gonna rise up again, conquering over Satan, sin, and death for anyone who believes in my name. Why does Jesus do this? Because God wants to glorify his name in his way. Peter says that he does but he's contradicting the God. He claims to be glorifying and it's wrong. It's easy to slip into that. It's so easy to slip into that. Um, for us, um, it might be wanting to bless others financially, but we only want to do it from a comfortable spot. So we give up sacrificial giving and we say we're doing so under the banner of financial responsibility. So we don't have to give up more than we would like right? Like Peter, we do this all the time and it, it often comes down to an unwillingness to suffer for the sake of others. Instead of, of that, he wants to powerfully vindicate God. And, and that suffering that he's trying to vindicate God for and, and through, obviously that suffering is hard. And when the world sees that kind of suffering, what his counsel to us will be is, Man, when the mob comes, pick up a sword and start swinging. And that is not obedient to Jesus because he didn't come to destroy the world. He came so that he could save the world at great personal cost to himself. And so must we be willing to. Christian, there will be a day when everyone who does not call Christ Lord, they're gonna have to square up with him. It's not your job to give them the warm up round. It's your job to love them and show them the sacrificial love of Christ. It's not to study the Ben Shapiro's of the world to figure out how you can destroy them in advance. It is to suffer for them. Just like he says in Mark 8, just like he's saying in Matthew 26, just like he did. Now, now I wanna flag this really quickly. I'm not saying that you have to stay in every harmful or abusive situation or relationship. That's not what I'm saying. But what this text is saying is that if all we see when we're confronted with an enemy 
is an opportunity to start swinging, we're missing something essential about the gospel, guys. Tri-City Church, where is God calling you to put down your sword? Where is he calling you to pick up your cross? And where are you pursuing some good goal according to your ways instead of his? Right, so in Judas, we saw a man's good done in man's way. And we saw that that was selfish. And in Peter, much the same, we see that pursuing God's good in man's way is also selfish. Lastly, let's, let's see Jesus and how he pursued God's good in God's way faithfully. Let's look at verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Doesn't everything about this scene just seem wrong to you? He's the nicest, he's the best guy ever. And he's staring down the barrel of a fully loaded gun, right? Weapons he made in the hands of children he made, ready to take him away. And he reminds them that he's done nothing but good for them. Sat in the temple teaching all the while, right? And, and the people who are taking him away are very aware of his teaching, right? These are the religious elite, the elders and the scribes. Now, and, and the Roman guards too. Now, now here's the thing. They came in the night. They, they didn't come in the day. And, and they took him to a trial that wasn't quite fair. David's gonna talk to us about that trial next week. All you need to know right now is they were not interested in giving Jesus a fair shake. They treated him like he was already guilty, though he was totally innocent, revealing their criminality. Everything about this scene seems wrong. And Jesus says, totally according to plan, right on schedule. Verse 56 says this, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. It's just like he said to Peter earlier in, ver in verse 54, right? So, so why does Jesus say this? What does he mean when he says the scriptures should be fulfilled? Well, he's telling us something very important about the character of God. And it's that our God keeps his promises, okay? All throughout the Old Testament, these scriptures are God's words with a great hope, a good hope and promise for humanity. And a promise that we needed, especially since we fell from, from relationship with him in sin, right? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin was that they tried to make their desires the definition of good just like Judas, Peter, me, and you, right? And, and in trying to make their desires the definition of good, they sinned and they were separated from God into this, this fallen, broken order in life, but not without a merciful promise that God gave them. He said, I am going to bring humanity back into relationship with me. And, and he says how he's going to do it. He expands on that promise in, in all the 66 books of the Bible here. And he says that I'm going to bring that restored relationship between humanity and God through a man, Genesis 3, who'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 
from the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, to bless all the world, Genesis 12, to redeem his people, Ruth 4, so that we, his people, would weep no more, Isaiah 30. God is saying all the way throughout, he's got 400 prophecies, 400 promises about Jesus laid out in the Old Testament. And our God doesn't lie. Titus 1, 2, right? Our God fulfills his scriptures, his word. And in this scene, he's doing just that because, because all these promises, they're expensive. They're expensive. And on, on Easter, we celebrate that God paid the bill for them, right? Isaiah 53, it talks about how all of our moral crimes against God, everything you and I have ever done wrong, there are consequences for those things. And that God poured the consequences of all of those crimes on himself, right? The way that you and I would look at Judas's actions in this passage with disgust and say, how dare he? The way we look at Judas's crimes, God looks at ours and rightly so. And mercifully, he says, I'll take the consequences of all of it. And if you put your faith in me, you will receive my reward instead of yours. And Jesus' reward for, for all those who call him Lord and Savior and treasure, their reward is life with God and the family of God forever with no more shame. The cross is the price for that that no one wanted to pay. Judas, he picked silver. Peter picked power. And we pick our poisons too. No one wants to honor the promises of God except Jesus, right? Jesus honored the promises of God fully. And of course, that makes perfect sense because our God makes good on his word. So, so what does that mean for us? It, me, it means two things. And the first is that we can and must examine our hearts by his standards, not ours, right? When we're defining success, we can't define it over how much we stocked up for retirement. We can't define success by how bragworthy our family is. We can't define it by, did we get the ideal person to fall in love with us the way we wanted? Right? Our definition of success needs to be, did we submit our lives and everything in them to the scriptures the way that Jesus did? That's how we measure what is success. And, and secondly, when you and I inevitably don't do that the way we should, when, when we pursue the wrong good the wrong way, or, or even the right good the wrong way, we have a faithful Jesus who is perfect in our place. And we need to remember and bask in the forgiveness that his life offers us. So if you've accepted Jesus, I hope you can see why God can have such grace with you in everything you've done wrong. He doesn't ultimately see your faithlessness. He sees this perfect Jesus. So when you, when you fail, when you fall short, fix your eyes on this Jesus, regardless of what you've done. And trust that, that as you come to him with your, with your sorry, you can bask in the forgiveness that he promises if you've put your faith in him. Tri-City Church, let's close by seeing ourselves in this passage the way we ought, in the mob, 
in Judas, in Peter. The last verse says it all. After, after Jesus says, put down your sword and follow me. We read this. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Church, on our account, we are not faithful. We are not good people on our own. Thank God that he has not left us on our own. Amen? And, and in that, we are not measured by the faithlessness of us, but by the faithfulness of God. The good news of the gospel is that though our wants betray the Father's will, Jesus Christ is faithful still. And because he is faithful, we go where he leads. Let's remember who is good. Let's put down our swords and let's pick up our crosses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good dad who honors his promises, who's got a good word. Jesus, we thank you for being faithful despite us. It's not that we merited your grace, God, but you came and you lived out the life that we should have and you died the death that we should so that we could have life with you forever. Jesus, thank you for being good on your word. And Spirit of God, we need you to do what only you can do in us. We cannot change our desires on our own. We do not love you how we should on our own, but you, Spirit, love to save us from our wicked hearts. So would you transform our desires to be that that love you, that honor you? Would we be faithful to your scriptures because you walk with us. And would we, Spirit, be reminded of the grace and forgiveness that waits when we fall short? We ask for these things for our joy, God, for our joy, but for your glory. We ask for these things in Jesus' name, amen.